Well, good evening to each of you. You can turn your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is a chapter where what's following Paul begins the book and, and works into the book with talking about the personal experience of the Christian, the personal life of the Christian. Then he moves, transitions from that into the life of the church. And then he goes into chapter 5, talks about some very practical things and ends up the chapter talking about marriage, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Actually, I'm going to begin reading at verse 13 and read to verse 18. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Stop reading there. So verse 13, it says, whatever makes manifest is light. Light gives us the ability to see. And it gives us the ability to know where we're going, to know what's around us, and how to relate to the world. If we're in darkness, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know where we are. We don't have any context for um, connecting with the world. The world is not made manifest to us. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep and rise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Wake up. Because you have light, wake up. Pay attention to what is around you. Walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. A biblical fool is a person who knows what to do and doesn't do it. So if you know what you should be doing and you don't do it, the Bible says you're a fool. Don't walk like that. Walk as someone who is wise. Maybe you think that I'm going to talk about time tonight. I'm not really going to be talking so much about time as about some other things. And I really am working towards uh, two other verses, verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 Do you know what God's will is for your life? Well, the light will make manifest to you God's will. So if you know the light, if you're familiarized with the light, if you're living in the light, God's will will be made manifest to you. And so then you can walk in wisdom. So why include verse 18? Be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Because wine is a mind-altering substance. Alcohol is mind-altering. Drugs are mind-altering. You want a verse for, uh, to speak to someone about whether they should use drugs or not, uh, you can use that verse because drugs are mind-altering. And the Bible says don't use substances. The Bible is saying here don't use substances to alter your mind. The Spirit of God is what should alter your mind. The Spirit of God is mind-altering. And God wants our minds to be altered by his spirit. So just give you that as a background because I have a real interest in in several things. One of them is the the effect of how the things that we we use and interact with 
Um, what effect do they have on us as people? What effect do they have on our minds and the way we think and so on? And so that's part of the reason why I have been, I studied, have been studying this some, this subject. Um, the other thing that I have real interest in is brotherhood. And the, and when I say brotherhood, I'm not just talking about people getting together for church. I'm talking about something that's real, something that affects the way you live because of the people with whom you have close relationships with in your church family. And you value those relationships and you live differently because of those relationships. And you don't want to damage those relationships. You want to build those relationships. So those are things I have interest in and, and it's in that vein of thinking that I've done this study and bring this to you. I have a quote here from John Adams soon after the Constitution of the United States was established. He said this about the Constitution. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry could break through the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution is designed only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any other. There's something that we need to get from this quote, and it's the idea that a legal system cannot bring about right living. It is only effective when there is a moral or religious framework in the individual that connects them to that system. And so what John Adams is saying is that if there wasn't some moral or religious connection or, or framework within the people of the United States, that the Constitution would not be able, they would just go right through the Constitution. The Constitution would not be able to restrain the people of this country. And one of the things that I'm afraid happens is that sometimes we as conservative people think, not consciously, actually I think sometimes we think that we don't think this, and maybe we do, but we think that the church standard has the capacity to produce righteousness. And if you say, no, you know, I don't believe that, well, consider this. Do you expect the church standard to keep you on the straight and narrow? Do you think that if you're within the church standard, then you're doing okay? Do you think that if the church standard doesn't speak to it, then it's okay for me to do? Or is your life guided by something deeper than the church standard? Are you thinking about the things that you do that aren't mentioned in the church standard and evaluating whether they're good, a good idea or not? Is it a good idea for me to do this? Maybe the church standard doesn't say anything about it. Because the church standard, I'm not devaluing the church standard. It has a place. But the church standard can never be more than a starting point, a reference point on which we establish and build a deeper walk with Christ. So it's only a beginning. The Christian life is not founded on a written standard of living. It's not founded on a code of ethics. There is a code of ethics within the Christian life, but it's not founded on that code of ethics. It's founded on a life that's directed 
by a voluntary choice to discipline oneself to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. I'm not going to read that, but you can use that if you want to for a reference for why I say that. There's three basic things I want to point out. One of about being a disciple of Jesus and disciplining yourself to follow him. One of them is following Jesus. Jesus does not drive us. He doesn't chase us. He leads. And you choose either you choose voluntarily to follow him or you choose not to follow him. He will not force you to follow him. The second is voluntary choice. You have a decision to make. You have a personal decision to make about whether you're going to follow him or not. If you choose not to follow him, he will allow you to take that course. But it must be your choice, and it is voluntary. The other is personal discipline. If we are going to choose to follow Jesus, we're going to leave behind things that get in the way of doing that, which means that we're going to let go of some things that might even be legitimately okay or not wrong in themselves because we have something else that we're aiming at. And we do that kind of stuff all the time. There are many, many things in this world that are legitimate things that you could do, but you don't do them because you have other things that you want to do. So if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to leave some things behind. That's personal discipline. The point that I'm trying to make with this is the idea that you are walking a road behind Jesus Christ. You're following him by your own choice if you're a disciple of Jesus. That means that you have a goal, you have someone that you're following. I want to think about it just a little bit different way. I want to think about it from the perspective of the flock. I don't know what you think about when you think about how church ought to function. But what does it mean, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the church as a flock? And when it talks about Jesus as the shepherd, and when it talks about pastors as being under shepherds, how does that function? Well, I think about a flock, I think about this nice green hillside and the flock of sheep kind of gathered there, not too spread out, eating grass, and, and the shepherd's there standing beside a rock with a, with a staff in his hand, and he's looking out over the sheep, and, and he's watching them, but he's also seeing things, and he's noticing that the grass is getting short here, and he's saying, okay, we need to go up to higher pasture. And so he takes them, he calls them, and they turn from what they're doing. He doesn't round them up and chase them. I've had some experience of trying to round up and chase sheep. It really doesn't work very well at all. About the only way you can get sheep to go where you want them to go is figure out how to lead them. So he knows where some other good pasture is, and he takes them up a rocky, winding path that goes past a steep precipice and it's got, there's bramble bushes on the side and there's possibility for the sheep to get caught in the bramble bushes and there's possibility for them to fall off the side and, and up here behind this rock is, is, a, is a wolf or maybe a lion. And there's a lot of things along this path as he's taking them to higher pasture that could, could harm these sheep. But the sheep are not having to be forced in by a fence. They're not having to be kept in. They're following they're not being protected by the fence. They're being protected by the shepherd and by them staying with the shepherd and collectively going together, following him. 
Now, I haven't talked a bit about tech and social media. And I need this every bit as much as, as we do, but brothers and sisters, I just have a real burden that we have this concept as we look at the things around us in the world, that we have a concept of brotherhood and following Jesus in this way that will enable us to evaluate the things around us and say, I'm just not going to do that because it gets in the way of me actually following Jesus the way I should or me being with my brothers and sisters the way I should. And so you're voluntarily just giving things up because there's more important things in life to you than having or consuming things. The title of my topic is The Effects of Tech and Social Media. And I'm going to say that I'm not particularly a tech expert uh, as far as the functionality of the equipment at all. Um, if you have questions about functionality of the equipment, talk to somebody else because I probably won't be able to help you. Um, neither am I an anti-internet fanatic. And I don't want this talk to load the gun of someone who is anti-internet. And the reason why I don't want that to happen is because one of my favorite verses in Acts 13, verse 36, I believe, it talks about, um, it's talking about the resurrection. And Paul uses an argument about David. And he says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. There's a little phrase in there. David served the purpose of God in his generation. We are living in a generation where internet exists. And the question is not about whether, so much about whether we're going to have internet or not. The question is about whether we're going to serve the purpose of God in our generation. And that is very important to me. And simply trying to avoid our generation will not serve the purpose of God. We need to serve the purpose of God in our generation. He has placed us here at this time to serve his purpose. Let's believe that he has the power to give us what we need to do that. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about now transitioning into this idea of the effects of fame. I mean, effects of social media. I want to talk about, about fame a little bit. So the definition of fame, a rough definition of fame, is to be known by those who you do not know. So the more people that, that know you that you do not know, the more famous you are. Someone who is famous, he doesn't know that many more people than you do, but he is known by many, many more people than he knows. In past civilizations, there was only a handful of people that were famous. The people who did really significant things, who held significant positions, or displayed remarkable talents. Those were the people who were famous. But it's not, it doesn't have to be that way today. Ava was a 14-year-old TikTok star who lived in Florida. An 18-year-old man from Maryland became obsessed with her. When she cut off communication with him, he began stalking her, eventually coming to her home. Her father shot and killed the young man after he fired a shotgun through their front door. Ava felt that the good she, of her social media interaction outweighed the bad. And this is what she thought the good was. Primarily, that she gets a thrill every morning at the amount of likes on her latest video. Even though the bad was an obsessed young man attacking their daughter, Ava's parents 
are allowing her to continue her TikTok account and build her brand. The secular commentator relating the story finished with this. Parents need to, to be looking down the road for their children from a vantage point inaccessible to the child. It seems gross and negligent for Avis, on the part of Avis parents to allow her to continue, but compared to parents who allow their children to pursue fame on social media, they are worse only by degrees, not by kind. End of quote. So basically, Ava started her TikTok account, and her thing was dancing, I believe, and she started getting a lot of likes, and she got a lot of likes from a lot of people. She became very famous. This young man started to stalk her, um, contacting her, asking for personal photos and things like that. Um, and then eventually, what I related here in the story, was it wise for Ava's parents to allow her to continue with the danger to her life, only the danger to her life? It would seem unwise for them to allow her to continue to do that and expose herself to how many other 18-year-old men who were also obsessed with young girls and might come and shoot through their front door. You say, well, we don't have that kind of people in our churches. Okay. But is it wise to allow your child to pursue that kind of position on social media? Are they able to look down the road and see the effect that it'll have on their lives? Someone said that fame on social media is similar to being a lottery winner. The fame can be acquired with no discipline, and those who achieve it do not know how to handle its negative side. So fame has a negative side. Is your 14, 12, even 16, maybe even 18-year-old child going to know how to handle the negative side of fame? Or even if it's not the fame to the extent that she's talking about, how about just simply the image that they put forward on a social media account? So when they put out their their information on, on social media, they then have a stigma that they need to uphold because this is how I'm presenting myself. And so when they're with their friends, they have to present themselves. They feel like they have to present themselves. They have the pressure of presenting themselves in the same way that they present themselves on social media. And what's really easy to do is to withdraw actually from your friends because you have that pressure of presenting yourself, you know, better than reality and to simply expand your social media connection. Then there's another side of it too, and that, that is for those who, who seek that, but their lives never seem to line up with this, the fantastic snippets that they see on everybody else's account. And so then they get gripped by a sense of desperation that somehow they don't measure up to the rest of the world. That their life is a failure. And right now, as we speak, there's currently an epidemic of 12 to 14-year-old girls attempting to commit suicide in our country. And largely, secular people are tracing it back to their involvement with social media. Girls are especially vulnerable at that age to social media and the effects of desiring fame as well as um, when they don't reach that place. And no, we don't have a bunch of ladies, young ladies slitting their wrists. Praise the Lord for that. But we are not 
neither are our minds, neither are we immune from the demoralizing effect that, that has the same demoralizing effect. The same psychological patterns that take those girls to the place where they commit suicide will work on us if we use social media wrongly. So I want to talk also about how, what, the, what the psychology is that's driving social media. What are the people thinking who run the platforms? Why are they giving you the opportunity to have a free Facebook account, for instance? Well, they're thinking about money. And the way that they make money is not from you directly, but indirectly by selling ads. So they sell ads and Google, well, so Evan has products that he sells. Other people might have products that they sell. But what if you had a product that you wanted to sell and you could target the people, primarily the people who were interested in that product. So you had a lawnmower to sell, sell and you could put your ad in front of people who were looking for a lawnmower. Wouldn't that be ideal? Well, Google, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and similar um, platforms have a way to do that. They use AI or artificial intelligence to gather your data constantly as you're online. So when you're online, they're constantly gathering the data from your device and collecting it, and then they're customizing what they send to you. The longer you're online, the more data they collect. So the better idea they get about what your interests are. So they're constant, as they're constantly connecting this, collecting this data that you're consuming, then they are start channeling to you, back to you, the information, the ads, but also the content that is along the same vein as what you're looking for. So you go online and you think, well, I want to look up a lawnmower. This, I use this because this happened to me. Um, and so you look up a lawnmower or two, and I was kind of, I'd sold my lawnmower and I was looking for a new one. The next day, I picked up my phone, different device, picked up my phone, opened up an app, and there was a lawnmower ad. And I said, what in the world is going on here? And that's exactly what was happening. They were gathering my data, and my phone and my computer were connected, and so they started sending me ads. So, well, you say, well, does, does that matter? Well, there's, there's two things that are happening with that. So they want to keep you online. They want, to, they want to sell you things, but they want to sell you things by keeping you online. So how do they keep you online? They keep you online with two main uh, in two main ways. One of them is polarization and the other is addiction. And so they want to either get you addicted to something that will keep you online or they want to get you caught up in something that's polarizing that will keep you online. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that happens later. But before I go to that, I want to talk about, in part, why that affects us the way that it does. The appeal of that is to consumption rather than development. 
So the appeal, largely the appeal that they're feeding you is, appeal to, is an appeal to consume instead of for you to actually develop as, as an individual. It feeds your appetite, not your strength. It circumvents the natural process to feed your reward system. And I can use a very common example for that, and that's sugar. So 150 years ago, where did we get our sugar? Maple trees, that's good. We didn't get much, that's a good point. Honey, fruit, but Evan's point stands, you didn't have it so much and it wasn't highly concentrated. Where do you get sugar now? but you don't buy them in that form. It gets extracted and you get it at the grocery store in a five pound bag or 10 pound if you use a lot and as many as you want typically. But there's a couple things that happen in that, that, that happen, okay, so maple, uh, maple sugar, you don't get that for free. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of exercise to get that sugar. After you have boiled down how many gallons of sap to get that sugar, you put it on very sparingly because you have a limited amount and you want to add just enough to add flavor and a little bit of, of taste to your food. Same deal with honey. You have to go out and look for it. It's not an unlimited supply 150 years ago. Fruit. You can go gather your fruit, but fruit spoils. You put it in the cellar. You only have a limited amount of it. You use, you use it at the end of your meal, maybe, but you don't have an unlimited supply. Today, we have an unlimited supply of sugar. What's the end result? The end result is in the developed world, obesity is a leading cause of death because we have technology to extract sugar. And that sugar feeds our reward system. A reward system, you are meant to go out and seek and gather that sugar in small amounts and it fed a reward system, but it, was, it, it has become disconnected from the exercise and discipline that it takes to get it. And so, as a result, it's easy for us to go to the sugar bowl and dump in as much sugar as we want into any dessert or as many foods as we want and to have a problem with our weight because of that and our health. So... I'm going to give you a list of things. These things are not... Only one of these things is sinful in and of itself. But that's not the point. And so the point is... The point is not whether it's sinful or not. The point is that it's feeding our reward system. These things are feeding our reward system instead of our development, okay? So I, I want to make that clear. YouTube is this to real experience. It's the same as an overdose of sugar. Porn is this to sexuality. Social media is this to relationships. Online shopping is this to exploration and discovery. And by feeding 
you things that are polarizing and addicting. They feed you. They feed your psychological reward system. And how do they do that? How does that work? Well, when you see something that is, a, that is addicting, it gives you a dopamine hit. When you see something that's polarizing, it gives you a dopamine hit. And that's a reward circuit in your, mind, in your brain. And your brain wants to go back and get more of that. And so you see something that's fascinating. It might not be sinful, but it's fascinating and you want more. And right there on the sidebar is more options. And so you click on another. And before you know it, an hour's gone. Two hours are gone. But that's not the biggest problem. Yes, it's a waste of time. But you're actually short-circuiting your rewards, your reward system. And by short-circuiting your reward system, you're not developing properly. It breaks that circuit, and you are not able to fully develop healthy relationships. Now, I'm not just saying human relationships. I'm saying relationships with the world. I'm saying with relationships with reality, relationships with the truth. You're not able to, when, when you get caught in this cycle of polarization or addiction, you get pulled into a state of semi-unreality. And it isn't just that you don't develop those relationships. The problem is that you can't develop those relationships. It's just like you can't eat an unbalanced diet and develop your body well. It just does not work. You cannot do it. You have to have a well-balanced diet to develop properly. And the same is true with the way we feed our minds. So secular, the secular source that I got some of this, a lot of this information from, calls these appetites our lower nature. And the reason they call them our lower nature is because they're interested in our development as human beings. They want to see us being educated. They want to see us moving forward. And what they're seeing us do instead is falling into these cycles of consumption that aren't developing, that are just simply feeding our reward system. They're not developing us as human beings. And we're not, our young people today in, out in society are not developing properly. They're not developing properly in their minds. And that's why there's such rashes of these afflictions that, mental afflictions that many in, our, in the secular world are facing, many children. So the other thing that happens is that as they, channel, as they channel the content that you're looking for, they also give you a list of options, usually like YouTube, for instance, gives you a list of options on the sideline, sidebar. So you're watching a YouTube video, and there's this whole list of other videos. Well, those, those other options are often veined along the same line as the one that you're watching. And you look down over, the, over that list of things, and you say, oh, you know, there's one that, you know, is maybe a little bit more interesting, and so you click on that one. And so what actually happens is the, the information starts to veer, starts to take you on a, shit, on a changed path. And that's part of how the polarization works. The polarization, as, it, as, it, as you're feeding on this information, is taking you to more and more radical views. 
And the more radical a view gets, often the more it misrepresents the other side. And so the more disconnected you come from the opposing uh, viewpoint, the opposing understanding. And a big reason why the U.S. is facing so much polarization right now in the political world is because of social media. People are getting polarized, extremely polarized through social media and, and news outlets that are feeding these very things that we're talking about. So do you think that that's affecting the church? Well, what about the rash of links that have been sent out over the last couple years about COVID? I, I got so many links. Watch this link. Watch this link. You need to see this. You need to see this. It's people's opinions. It's ideas. And it's, it's often either one side or the other. And, and sometimes it's pretty radical sides about which side. And I, I, got, I got links from both sides. I'll just put it that way, of the issue. I want to talk specifically about some current social media and tech platforms. The first one, first two I want to talk about is TikTok and Snapchat. I would suggest to you that you delete them if you have an account with either one of those. Both of them are designed around sensuality and fame. TikTok especially is centered around uh, promotion of personal image. And uh, a lot of the content of TikTok, people are, this drive for fame, this drive for, for building my image and my brand is done by undressing to get likes, which is how they, they build their brand. Snapchat is probably the lesser of the two, but my understanding is it was originally designed around sexting or a way to send pictures to people, explicit pictures to people that were, would vanish very quickly and there would be a low level of accountability. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't use that app carefully and eventually um, move to a place where the content is fairly good overall. But... Why slog through a bunch of immorality and, and stuff that is not necessary for you to see when you could use another messaging app almost equally as well? There's a lot of better options. Twitter has become an insult playground and is one of the biggest drivers in polarization right now. Elon Musk is not trying to buy Twitter for no reason. He is very much involved in that because of the effect that it's having on the American people. I don't know of many, if any, of our people that use Twitter or if they do use it much, but it's, in my mind, not a good place to hang around. Instagram has taken a very severe downward turn in the past five years. It has been infected by a thing called porn bots, which are links, blog site links, that a, an Instagram user can click on that link and it can take you to a site that has explicit pictures that Instagram would not allow. So what users are doing 
is they're putting these, they're, they're making their own blog site with these pictures on it, and they're placing the link on their Instagram page, and when you click on that link, it takes you to an explicit site. And it is not filterable because it is a social site, not a, it's not listed as a pornographic site. It's fairly new, so it doesn't have, um, it doesn't have data connected with it that, that blocks it. And so Instagram has really taken a downturn in that sense. There's another sense too, I'll cover that when I go over Facebook. But many of those sites on Instagram are not filterable. Facebook is a great place to spend hours looking at people and things with whom you have no real connection. Their video content is largely essential and the content posted by the majority of people who do not share our faith and practice is patriotic and essential. And as Christian people, those are things that we just don't need to have a lot of contact with outside of what's necessary. And when I say what's necessary, I'm saying that in your normal run of life, you're going to run into patriotism, you're going to run into sensuality in the normal process of life. But should we be exposing ourselves by spending hours on Facebook perusing people who we hardly know and being exposed to sensual and patriotic content. But there's more to it than that. Time spent with Instagram and Facebook friends is time taken away from people with whom we have meaningful relationships. The people you will have the most meaningful relationships with are the people that are right around you. And if you don't develop and build those relationships, you're going to miss out on something very valuable. So here's the recommendation that I gave my congregation at Mabel. I highly recommend that you limit your social media use to those with whom you have meaningful relationships. If you cannot limit yourself to this, delete your account. Now that has to do with personal discipline. What are you limiting yourself to with your social accounts? And I'm calling you to limiting it to people with whom you have meaningful relationships. I want to throw out one other thing, and it has to do with WhatsApp. WhatsApp is probably my favorite messaging app. I really like using WhatsApp. Uh, it has several features that are really handy. You can send somebody a message, and you can tell when it leaves your phone, you can tell when it gets to their phone, and you can tell when they read it. So if you have a message that you want to send to somebody, you can send them a WhatsApp, and you can tell if they actually got the message. If they did, you're like, okay, good, they got the message. And you don't have to bother them with a phone call a couple minutes later if they didn't get it, if you don't know for sure. But there's this little thing on WhatsApp that I have done before, and probably some of you have done before, and I'm not condemning it. I'm just saying, think about this particular aspect of statuses. A status is something that you can take a picture and you can put it on, take a picture, a quote or something, and put it up, and it goes to people with whom or your contacts, etc. The value of a memory is best retained when kept with those who shared the experience. So I'm talking about those precious moments that you have with your family. 
when you have those precious moments with your family that you will remember for a lifetime, what is your go-to response? Is it to post a status? If it is, you're going to actually lose value in the long term from those experiences. Because the value of those experiences is best kept when it is between you and the person with whom you had the experience. There are a lot of good things that people put up on status. I think uh, there's a lot of good quotes. There's a lot of good there's scripture, uh, things like that. And, and I, I'm primarily not talking about that. I'm primarily talking about the moments that you have with close friends that are extremely valuable. Keep those valuable by not sending them out to everybody in the world. Okay, YouTube. YouTube is the second largest search engine on the internet. And that's not a real surprise because video is the way God designed us to interact with the world. Our eyes are the camera, our minds are the screen. But video is taking over the internet for advertising especially and is a way to reach people. And there's a, but there's a project that I want you to do. There's a video I want you to watch. Um, so I put a camera on my hat for two weeks and recorded everything that I did. And I want you to sit down and watch that video. It's, let me see, how many hours is two weeks? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm making this up. But my point is that none of you would have the patience to watch a video of the day-to-day -day mundane tasks of Philip Martin. You just wouldn't have the patience to watch that. You'd maybe like to watch a few 30-second clips, and they're probably the ones that I wouldn't want you to watch. <laughs> but the point is that that's not what YouTube has on it. It doesn't have real life experiences. It has the extreme. It has the spectacular. It has the amazing. And that's what draws you in. And when you feed on a diet, a regular diet, of amazing and spectacular things, it changes the way that you think about the world. And it messes up your view of your reality. It's also an information bypass to reading and discussion. It has, a video has way more information in it than reading, well, how do I say this? A 30 second video clip is hundreds of pages of writing, of information. And it doesn't just connect with your mind and your logic, it connects with your emotions because you are experiencing something very near reality when you experience a video. And so it connects more with your emotions. And so it, it gives you that, that, because it connects with your emotions, you will give more value to it than you do to the written page. But the problem is that you will also judge it emotionally, which means that you will not judge it as logically as you do the written page. And so you will not be able to gather the information as factually as you do from the written page and from discussion and from real life experience. 
our rules and discipline addresses uses of technology on page 34, video specifically. It says legitimate uses are business and instruction. And I would like to encourage you that if you do not discipline yourself to meet or exceed that standard, you will be negatively affected by video. And video games and computer games are very much this way, the same way for children especially. Please do not let your children play video games. Sorry, young people. Do not play video games. You will not develop properly if you play video games. I know 40-year-olds who spent years playing video games, and they have not developed properly. So I've seen the end result. I'm not talking about a Yahtzee on the phone or something like that. I'm talking about action-style video games. But just be careful, very careful. Podcasts. What's the, the, intake of, the intake of information is mind-forming. Where is the information coming from? Do you know the sources? Is it developing you? Is what you're listening to developing you? Here a while back, I, I listened to a, a novel, and it was just a just strictly a novel. It was very, very easy listening. It was a story, and I just was able to just relax and listen to the story. And I enjoyed it a lot. It was very easy. But on both sides of that, I listened to a good portion, all the Old Testament, some of the New Testament, just before that. And just after that, I listened to some um, podcast information that was about um, truth and I forget what all the, the subjects, subject matter was. That was difficult listening, but I learned something from it because I had to engage my mind as I listened. The story could just flow and it had no, it, it didn't have any, any real weight to it. And so it didn't require me to really engage with what I was hearing. I was just absorbing. Is the information that you listen to on podcasts building you up? Is it developing you? Is the, are the sources reliable? Is it taking you in the direction you want to go? And especially, I say, for those who are young in faith, reliability of the source is extremely important, as well as the fact that it's very mind-forming, especially mind-forming for young people. I want to say just this yet about online shopping. So I do a fair amount of online shopping for farm-related items, things like that. <clears throat> and I, th I think it's a good tool. It has its place. But one of the things that we as human beings need to do is we need to seek and pursue things. Now, when I say things, I'm not talking about material items. I'm talking about that we need to be engaged with the world around us. We need to be living lives that are moving forward. Well, who should we seek? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so our seeking should be primarily aimed at the kingdom of God. And what things like online shopping do, they give us a platform on which we can seek endlessly 
for things that are legitimate and not and, and thereby neglect the things that are most important in life. And so they, they actually feel a reward circuit that was meant to be part of what drives us to pursue God and a deeper understanding of him and, and better knowing him. So I need to wrap this up. So God put these physical reward circuits in place to take us beyond the physical to the deeper relational part of who we are. And I got halfway here this evening and I realized I'd forgotten something. I had three containers. I had a little sandwich, round sandwich container about this big round and a pint jar and then I had a two pint jar. And I set them up here side by side and I put the sandwich container on top of the pint jar. They hold the same amount of, of product. But what happens when we start, get into these broken reward circuits, when we break our reward circuits, it's like the pint jar with sandwich container on top of it. We actually build a blocker between the deeper part of our being and the surface initial interaction that is to take us to deeper relationships. We build a blocker there, and because we don't have that deep part of our being filled up, we continue to reach, and we reach out instead of reaching down. And so we use platforms like social media to broaden and broaden and broaden our circle, seeking to have that deeper part of the relational nature of ourselves as human beings fulfilled and never finding it because we're getting broad and shallow instead of deep as individuals. And the second jar represented a person who's well-formed, who has limited the actual amount that they spread out to give them the ability to go deep in their relationships, to go deep down to heart relationships with God and with those around them. We don't have rules in our church about how much sugar you can add to your food. And I'm glad we don't. I don't think we could handle that. I don't know that we will be able to keep up with the changes in technology with our rule book. I don't think we'll be able to. But remember, that's not what the Christian life is founded on anyway. It's not founded on a set of rules. It's founded on you having a relationship with Christ, your brothers and sisters, and disciplining yourself to take that path. And we live in a world that has a lot of things we could choose besides taking that path. And I've talked about a lot of things tonight that aren't specifically spelled out, per se, in the rules and discipline. What are you going to do with those things? Are you going to say, well, you know, that makes sense, but the R&D doesn't say that I have to, so I'm not going to make any changes. Or are you going to say, well, I'll wait till the church speaks to it, and then I'll do it. If we take that course in about, in a couple years, we're going to have a problem because we are, our 
lack of discipline is being exposed. And in fact, I think that's part of the reason why this is such a big issue in conservative churches now is because our lack of discipline is being exposed in these, in these things. The Spirit of God is the only thing that can truly restrain the passions of your heart. So if you're going to, if you're, the passions of your heart are going to be restrained, if you're really going to discipline yourself, you're going to have to have a close relationship with Christ in the world. I made a, a transition to Southeastern some years ago, and someone told me during that transition that they thought I was leaving safety by leaving the church where I was that was had taken some positions that, that Southeastern doesn't address. And you know, the Spirit of God gave me a response. Jesus Christ is the only safety we have in this world. We must know Him. And if we are violating the ethics of truth, it is simply an indication that we're not spiritually developed people. And I see real possibility that overindulgence in technology and social media specifically can hinder our spiritual development. Far beyond our intellectual development is our spiritual development. And God forbid that we should be, we should allow things to hinder our spiritual development. And we need to be aware of these dangers, but I want to finish on a positive note. What we need most of all is a revival of the two greatest commandments. To throw our lives into developing deep relationships with God and with those around us, those people that are close.